Hello, everybody. Today we have a guest. Um, his name is Derek. I think it's Hetzel. If that's incorrect, I'm sorry. But um, so we're going to talk. Uh, it's going to be a little bit different today. Um, so and I always say that. And that's a good thing, right? You don't want to be listening to the same podcast over and over and over, right? That would be ridiculous. But um, so, but today we're going to kind of explore a bunch of strange topics that I think we've never really covered many of them before yet. Uh, so like aliens, that is going to be an interesting thing. Um, uh, maybe consciousness. Um, also, what else did I say? Afterlife and kind of whatever that comes up. And um, so this guy actually has his own podcast as well. And I'm going to let him explain a little bit of that right now as we introduce him. So welcome, Derek. How are you doing? Hey, Gage. Thanks for the introduction. Um, I'm doing quite well. It's a beautiful day in San Francisco and looks gorgeous outside. So uh, pretty happy and grateful just to be here and having this conversation and being alive in general. Um, yeah, the, the topic range is interesting because I think a lot of those things will tie in together, uh, but we'll get there when we get there. And um, for now, I guess this is my time to plug uh, my podcast. Plug it. Um, so, so as everybody knows, you know, instead of going to therapy, men like making podcasts. And so I made my own um a while ago it's called reach and reflect it's about meaning and finding fulfillment and tapping into your potential and uh there's only six episodes i i interviewed a lot of my friends um who i found particularly inspirational uh, a lot of them have really crazy stories some of them coming from like literally nothing to now being what i would consider wildly successful and all of them have quite a bit of wisdom uh to drop so if you're looking for inspiration uh head over to reach and reflect.com yeah, thank you. Yeah, I was checking out that, um, I think his name was Josh or something. And he's mm, from uh, yeah. Google, right? I think, or something. Apple. He ended up at Apple. Apple, yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah, that story was pretty interesting. I, I didn't check out the full episode yet, but uh, I was kind of like skipping around to see like what kind of uh, conversations were happening. And um, I liked it. So well, Thank you. Where should we start? What is your favorite one of these topics? <laughs> um, I, I almost feel like I should explain how I got into these. So there's maybe like a, a, a bit of credentials and context for people. Yeah, that would be um, Yeah, so I'm not officially credentialed, um, but I, I like to geek out about all of these subjects and I, I developed an interest in um, consciousness as a subject um, you know, after experiencing some altered states of it, we'll say, um, via, you know, um, certain substances that, you know, maybe I shouldn't mention too much about because of my day job, but either way, anyway, I experienced some altered states and I got curious as to like, okay, well, what the hell was that? Um, and I started looking into various different, uh, philosophies, I guess. And I, I ended up kind of on, on Alan Watts as the first main guy who's, um, I guess, ways of thinking and, and perspectives. Um, and, and they really resonated with me. Like he was a guy who had 
a deep experience with the Christian worldview. He grew up in England, was highly educated, became a Catholic minister, and eventually was like, fuck this, I'm leaving, this sucks. And he traveled all around um, Eastern Asia. He picked up a lot of wisdom uh, from various Hindi teachers, from uh, Buddhist teachers, from you know Zen Buddhist monks in Japan, uh, from, from Taoist uh, in China. And he sort of formulated the first, uh, what I would call like integrated uh, philosophical and, and theological uh, worldview and, or even beyond that, it was almost like a universal uh, view on, on consciousness and, and how, I guess, everything kind of works, if you want to call it that. Um, so went, went from there to, to dabbling a lot more in, in these types of altered states, um, you know, via different, you might call them medicines. Um, also began picking up meditation, found myself in very spiritual circles. I uh, still have a lot of those friends and, um, you know, people from a variety of different backgrounds, all trying a variety of different uh, ways to alter your consciousness um, from sober to not. Um, and then also diving really deeply into what you might call UFO culture and just kind of seeing what's up. Um, but doing my best to keep, uh, I like to keep things at like an arm's length so I can uh, properly exercise my discernment and not really get so caught up in whatever the, you know, the memes might be of that subculture, right? I want to filter everything through, I guess my, yeah, my own discernment um, and not just take everything at face value to the best of my ability. Although, you know, as you get excited about a subject, it's really easy to like catch yourself spiraling and rabbit holing. Yeah. So. Yeah, totally. <laughs> not to say that doesn't happen <laughs> yeah yeah that's interesting that's, uh, yeah. I didn't actually know that stuff about Alan Watts even though I, I do like him um, the, the funny thing though is when I first found Alan Watts I actually didn't like him and then later I found kind of that I accidentally resonated with him as I like I would listen to what he said and I'm like oh my god this is like all the stuff that I've been kind of talking about, like what I thought I disliked this person or something, but then I was wrong. <laughs> um, and it's kind of interesting when things like that happen. It, it's, it kind of changes. Um, I don't know. It kind of like, in some sense, it spooks me because, like, I'm probably like, I must be wrong about many of my opinions, right? <laughs> so <laughs> there is that element. Um, mm. so, hmm. so yeah, it's okay if you don't wish to bring up any like specific, uh, substances or anything like that. Um, I can also remove your name. Like I can censor your name if you'd like that to be the case. Yeah. You know, I think we can do something like that. I, I know there's people that, so I work for everyone else here's context. I, I work at Facebook and I think it's, it's pretty common knowledge. You know, like a lot of us, like my boss knows I go to Burning Man and, you know, they, I think, have a, an inkling of what happens there. Um, but, yeah, maybe if we just make it a little less easily detectable that it's me, just we can blur, blur out my name and then that way I can give a little more detail into whatever we want to go into. Okay, sure. Hmm. I guess. Hmm. I don't know if we should we go into just the UFOs right away or what, or what do you, where do you want to go first? Well, I, I felt an interesting jumping off point when 
you had built up a, you know, your opinion of Alan Watts and then you kind of had that reversed. Right. And, um, you know, one, I, I catch that happening on occasion with myself as well. Right. And I, I really liked what you said about, um, okay, well, if I was wrong about that, like what else might I be wrong about? Oh yeah. And, and, and I wanted to take that to the next step, which, which for me is, you know, while I, I, I definitely do trust my own, um, you know, ways of thinking and, and discernment, I also try to humble myself a lot. And you might say I'm the most humble guy in the world, but yeah, it's, it, it's, it's something to really think about, right? Cause like we get so caught up in our, our convictions and, um, I think finding a position and, and this is really resonant with like the Taoist, uh, you know, go with the flow thing is to, to be able to relax and flex a bit, right? If you, you've, you let your positions move with the current of life around you as you start to, to feel into them a bit more. And I think it's really important to realize like that you develop that feeling for how they're changing. And it's really cool that you notice like, Oh shit, I actually do resonate with this guy. Now maybe I'm a little more like this way than I thought. Yeah. I used to kind of just straight out, like I would just go into different circles of the internet and kind of, I would, I would just express some or a bunch of different opinions to kind of like test, um, test my, I guess, uh, like force people to criticize my opinions basically. And sometimes mm. it would be very strange opinions. And that kind of worked when mostly it works if I don't know any of the people. If I know the people, there's like the, the fear that I will be stigmatized, right? Or that I'll um, kind of be known as the person with bad opinions or something like that, right? Um, but I kind of like kept doing that a lot. And that, that's been a crucial way of the way that I learn a lot like even with my blog at first there was so much pushback on a lot of the ideas that i would say and it's like the audience would actually teach me how to correct myself and like slowly over time this led to less and less criticism but at the same time this actually like kind of scares me more because i don't feel that i was entirely learning how to have right opinions necessarily but instead it's it's almost like I just learned how to make it so that maybe people don't, uh, like I don't trigger any of the red flags that people normally notice that make them kind of skeptical of an idea or something like that. And uh, I don't know if that's the case, but I do feel like that is some of what has happened as I've progressively gone like deeper into that uh, whatever you would call it, realm or something. Yeah, that's, there, there's a couple interesting things in there that stood out to me. And like, one thing I want to start with is like that, um, the, the, I guess, fear of social rejection is, I, I'm pretty sure like evolutionarily and biologically based, right? Oh, totally. Like, and that's a, it's an entirely natural thing to, to, to feel. And I think most people who, who say they don't probably do and are pretending that they don't, yeah. um, you know, because we, we grew up in, you know, communities and tribes. And if you didn't get along with the community or tribe, you didn't get to eat and you died. Right. So, yeah. and then that was for however many tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of years. So yeah, that's completely natural. And then I think the second bit of it, it sounds to me 
like you're um, softening your approach in in a way that will be more likely to land with your audience, right? And yeah. and I, I think that's a really crucial skill to have because you know you you got to meet people where they're at, man. Like if you if you're talking three levels, four levels of sophistication beyond them, then you essentially might as well be speaking a different language. So yeah, yeah. So, so um, but then the danger in that is like, you know, don't don't over transform or over conform to then lose the spirit of the message, right? And um, you know, so it, it's like balancing those two things out, and then at the same time understanding like, hey, this is a, you know, if whatever point you have to get across might take more than one conversation, and so maybe this one's just to prime them. Yeah, that's an interesting point, priming people. It's like uh, the foot in the door phenomenon, kind of, or whatever. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, get their feet a little wet, you know? And then, yeah. you know, a couple of days later, be like, hey, look, the water's really warm, dude. You could just come on in. Come on. Yep, and then soon, soon before you realize it, they are totally brainwashed by these new ideas no I'm just kidding but um, <laughs> yeah like um, so so hmm this idea about I've noticed like well I've only noticed a couple people like this and that's not enough to really conclude anything but but anyways I've noticed like I know at least you and one other person which is like, that's like the most horrible sample size, oh my god, but that are like into both psychedelics and UFOs, and it's kind of interesting. So like, mm. I'm not particularly, well, I don't know what I think about UFOs, but I do think about aliens a lot, and I kind of think about UFOs, but the way that I, I'm like super careful about it, um... But I also feel like whatever I conclude, like if there is some kind of technology that can get aliens here, it would be silly to think that I have to be able to understand that. And um, I guess like it would be very unlikely for that to be the case, right? Like I can't base my judgment on how much I know about traveling through space or anything like that because I have no idea. Mm. So I kind of try to stay open-minded about all of that. Um, so, so I don't know. Like, I've thought, like, what if Earth is, like, a zoo for, like, aliens or something, you know? Or <laughs> um, even if it's, like, a simulation. Or a reality TV show. Yeah, right? <laughs> um, so, like, what do you think? Talk, talk about UFOs. I want to go there. <laughs> Yeah, sure. So a couple of things like I don't I don't have like a solid conclusion, right? This is all speculation um, based off of, you know, personal experience. And I, I guess what you might call the, uh, the aggregation of a bunch of different narratives that I've come across and I find compelling. Um, so, so so I think it's a good place to start would be like, OK, well, what the fuck do you mean by aliens? Right. Yeah. And to me, that would be, uh, you know, life forms, we'll call them intelligent for the sake of this, that exist, you know, in a, in a way that's not on our planet, 
or it's, it's you know extraterrestrial right is i guess the term for that um but things get a little tricky when you when you get into like well what, what do you mean by the planet right what about like other dimensions that you know seem to exist at least according to a lot of you know speculative scientists and you know quant, some quantum theories seem to point at that right um yeah. and then and, and so that's where it kind of ties into consciousness and psychedelics for me is like well we seem to be able to perceive other you know fa- facets of reality is another way i like thinking of dimensions right i like thinking of you, you know it, it's just like a slight angular turn of your perceptions and suddenly things are very different but you haven't physically traveled anywhere right or you don't feel like you have like you're still wherever you you left and you can have a very different experience if you get in the right mode of, of perception and i i think i think spirits in the classical sense and aliens may be considered similar things if they're intelligent forms of life that exist in dimensions that are typically unseen to us right and they can interact with us in some ways and you know i'm i'm sure many you know i've seen many reports of people who have had experiences what certainly felt like a being that was other than them interacting with them during one of these types of psychedelic journeys right so would you consider that an alien or not or just like a a spirit bound on earth like i don't know i don't think you can know unless you have somehow an honest dialogue uh with it or a uh some sort of mind meld thing goes on um so so maybe those could be two separate classes of of phenomenon but when you think about like okay what about the classical you know little gray dude with a big head who's got a spaceship right and it's a saucer and you know he's here picking up people in the middle of the country to put stuff in their butts Um, (laughs) yeah right yeah that that i i don't know as as much about there's a whole um very far-fetched but very rich narrative around that um and yeah the, the the gist of it is these guys to some extent do exist their ships have been shot down here before are some military bases like in area 51 and um section i think it was like s4 i can't remember something like that um you know and and roswell all all these there's like military facilities that have been studying this tech for a long time and you know the narrative goes that we've been uh, attempting to reverse engineer this stuff for decades now and to some degree have succeeded um one of the next questions well like okay where's the i mean that i would ask anyways well where's the proof of that and there really isn't any that i could find outside of um who is it bob lazar so he he gave a a a very interesting testimony essentially on the joe rogan podcast and um it seemed pretty darn compelling uh there is a what was his name there's some like a lieutenant something or other he's in the you know the navy or the air force and um off the coast of san diego they're on this aircraft carrier and um he and his buddy get scrambled out in their jets to go inspect an unknown aerial phenomenon they didn't say what it was at the time but you know they're basically like hey can you go to these coordinates and just see what's up so um he and his buddy go out and by the way he's highly decorated like i think like 12 15 years something like that and is this the pilot thing yeah, there's there's a this is the tic tac. 
Okay, yeah, you've heard yeah, of that. I've seen that. Interesting. Yeah, movie. really, really wild, right? Um, yeah. And for for people who might not have have heard of that, right? So they, they fly out there and they see a disturbance of the water. It looks almost like it's boiling. Um, and I can't remember how large it was. It was fairly large, maybe like thirty feet by thirty feet. And they don't see anything. They just see the water like being weird and disturbed. And then the next thing they know, they see a um, what looks like a giant tic tac. You know those mints that they're rectangular with rounded edges, almost almost a little like cylindrical looking, but also rectangular in nature. Uh, no discernible markings, no discernible jet wash, nothing. And this thing starts making maneuvers that are what, what he thinks are physically impossible. So, like, the, 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 he sees the thing hovering over the water, and it's doing, like, a um, like a cross shape. It's going front, back, left, right, front, back, left, right, front, back, left, right, real fast. Um, and then the second he locks his sensors on it, it disappears. And he goes, like, what the fuck? You know, and his buddy and him are like, wait a second. It's now above us. And they look above them. And they're like, wait, this thing just went from, you know, ocean level to way above these guys that are thousands of feet in the air. And then they didn't even see it do that. Right? So something is really up and they start chasing it. Um, and I can't remember exactly the, the details there, but the gist of it is they can't, they can't catch up to it to make some other crazy maneuver. And then they get a call from the ship after, you know, shortly after it disappears from their line of sight, they start heading back to their ship. They get a call from the ship and they say, hey, that thing is over here now. And these are some of our fastest jets. And they were, you know, heading back at not a slow speed to the ship and that thing beat them there by a incredible margin. And, and yeah, and it's not the first report of Tic Tacs. There's a bunch of others uh, that were reported off the East Coast. Um, fighter pilots basically freaking the fuck out Right, like, yeah. what else would you do? It's interesting. <laughs> yeah, and, and these guys, have, they don't seem to have any incentive to lie about it. But they, all, interestingly, though, they were also allowed to talk about it. Um, there and, could be an and, incentive. That is an exciting story. Maybe fame or something. Yeah, they didn't strike me. This guy did not strike me as the type who is a fame seeker. Mm. He, he was very just like kind of, yeah, he's excited by it, but he was dry and he wasn't like, check out my book or anything like that, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and, and there's, cause there's multiple incidences of this happening, incidents of this happening. And the, um, the military has recently started declassifying documents saying, yeah, hey, so, uh, you know, you, yeah, right. You have all the kind of real guys is what they're saying. Like, we don't really know. They, they rebranded them as unknown aerial phenomena which is just a new name for UFO. Um, and, and yeah, and, and so the, the narrative says the incentive there is they're actually trying to warm us up to the fact that extraterrestrials do exist, right? And then if you put it in that frame, it does make sense that this guy was allowed to go public with what he experienced, and same with all the other reports. Um, so I don't know if that's the case, but you know, I haven't seen anything to the contrary yet. No one's going out and saying there's definitely none. So, yeah, hmm. I think what would be kind of interesting is what if, what if there were, wouldn't it be so much weirder if like, say we find out whatever it is, like maybe a, there's like a crash and then there's like creatures inside, but then we we eventually realize that like, like what if it like shares DNA with 
other creatures on Earth. And then we find out that this thing is like living under the ocean or under the ground or like someplace that we <laughs> never look, you know? And it's like there's just like this whole other society and they're they're like like the same way that we think about the moon landing or something, they're like, Oh, we're gonna do it, we're gonna get above the surface and it's just like this crazy thing or something. Yeah. Yeah, well there there's a couple so so there's definitely a big culture that believes there are subterranean alien colonies and um you know you you might look at the the octopus as an interesting yeah. potential example of that because they don't share i don't think any of our any of the the what are the chromosomes that we'd expect them to and that you know all their life shares um and when you look at them you're like that's that's a whole other thing like you know it, it doesn't look like any other ocean creature right its own family of absolutely ridiculousness it's highly intelligent it can change the color of its skin right um apparently they, <laughs> they apparently they develop resentment for people um, which is pretty hilarious and they punch fish out of spite sometimes oh yeah that sucks i saw that so lame. <laughs> <laughs> um, this so asshole octopi i will know they i think they are part of the cephalopod family or whatever which is like our it's the same family. I think they're the same family as like clams and stuff like that, or something. Interesting. Um, yeah, I, I thought it was like cuttlefish and like squid and octopi yeah. were all like their, like their own thing, but I didn't know if they had clams. There were in there strange too. life forms like way way back that just completely don't exist anymore. They're like things that aren't animals, plants, or fungi, and. uh I forgot what the word is for them, but I only recently learned about this. It was like, uh, but they 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 grow fractally too. It's like really. Oh look! Oh, he says archaeas. I that might be. Uh, I know that that's that's like uh, that's like the anaerobic organism, I think, or the organisms. Um, but there's another one that's like uh, they were large organisms. They weren't bacteria. They were like. Um, I don't know. If anyone knows, type that into the discussion or whatever. I can't remember. But they are... They grow fractally. They're kind of like plant-ish or something like that. Um, but they have all these like weird forms. If you look... If you later go look on like Google or something, it's like really, uh, really interesting and... Like, stuff like this really fascinates me. Like, I'm super into evolution and just kind of life generally. And uh, so, like, in in the context of aliens, this kind of... Uh, where I go with this topic is kind of... Um, well, I think that life probably emerges all over the place much more than we expect it to i think that the mm. way that we judge uh like there's a lot of skepticism that that people try to suggest that it's only earth that really has life or that that complex life is only on earth and then they talk about how usually they'll talk about how there's all these complicated phases that we had to undergo through evolution so like like in one of my recent explorations of like the the whole evolution of death topic, I kind of like was thinking about this like origin of life where 
Uh, you can imagine like the first organisms, they probably just like populated everything and uh, they reach a point, like there's probably no predators, there's probably no need for predators. And instead they will just like consume everything, all the resources, destroy their environment. And that's basically what we observed is that uh, there was like this great oxygenation event, which people have argued that like basically the archaea and the anaerobic life uh, started pumping out so much oxygen because they've just colonized everything. And mm. that led to their uh, basically ex uh, mass extinction event. And so like, it's like weird because... I think that could be like one of the first phases of probably life everywhere. It might just be that it populates totally until they start killing themselves. And then that self-killing is the first like selection pressure, like the first evolutionary mm -hmm. force or something like that. Since mm -hmm. there's no like predators or perhaps there's maybe like not as much competition or anything. Mm. Um, that sounds plausible. Yeah, like, did you see on Venus, there seems to be some gas in the clouds that it apparently, they, they, right now, the researchers have been basically saying that they have no idea how the gas could be there except by being pumped out by life forms. It's pretty wild. I like the sound of that. Yeah, and I bet it's, like, so common. I bet it's, like... I bet there's like multiple planets and moons in our own solar system that have life there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What is it? Um, Neptunes or Uranus and moons seem likely subjects. Yeah, I think they're suspects. I think it was Jupiter and Saturn, but I, there might be more than that that I don't know of. Probably. Yeah, there's a, there's a bunch. Um, I, I, I'm, I think I'm completely with you in the camp that there is much more life out there than what the mainstream narrative, I think, is reporting. Yeah. Like, I think, I think that, like, the way I kind of think about it is it's not necessarily that we, it's not like all of these complicated phases of, like, like, supposedly the idea is that all these different mass extinction events are what actually helped to allow for something like humans to evolve. And I think the mistake in assuming that that it just had to be like this complex, uh, very specific outcome, I don't think that's the case. I think that's just how we came about, you know? Like, I feel like there was a series of steps that that might be the only way that we could have come about, but I don't think that... I feel like there's probably so many different ways things could have gone. And yeah, I don't know. But I've been seeing like that, like lately I keep seeing this pop up, this hypothesis that there's like no other life or something like that, or like that there's just mm -hmm. less life usually is what the argument is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I've seen a lot of that. And I think it's a pretty popular one if you're... Whenever I read those... I, I get a feeling of not necessarily lack of imagination. Um, what's a better way to put it? There's like a bit of nihilism almost like there's just, yeah. um, 
Yeah, I don't know. I, mean, I, I, I never really vibe right with me, like almost like, oh gosh, it, it reminds me of like really militant atheists. We're just like, no, it's, it can only be this. Like there's nothing, there's no reason that anything else should exist. But um, almost like a very, like, I, I don't know. It, it's, it strikes me weird when, when someone can does something like that with such certitude. Right. Like, yeah, kind of like we were talking about earlier. It, it's really difficult to grasp. Well, first of all, what you know, right? Because that's changing all the time if you're paying attention. And then what you don't know, there's was there's what you know you don't know. And then there's what you don't know you don't know. And that last segment is probably way larger than both those first two segments combined by, you know, 10, 20, 100 X. There's so much out there, man. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard that thing that you just said. I don't remember where I heard it, but I like that um, idea. Like, I think people are so focused in what they, maybe what they know they don't know. I don't know which one they're focused on the most, but it's definitely not what they don't know that they don't know, right? <laughs> um, yeah, because that requires being humble and being like, oh, okay, hold on, maybe I don't know everything. Yeah. And... And we're programmed to be, at least in, in modern culture, I find to, you know, you got to know the answer, right? Like we're raised from a, literally since the moment we can go to school, right? What do we prize? We prize who can get their hand up first and tell the right answer, right? Yeah. That's just baked in, you know, and, and that into our reward systems, right? And so that's the knee jerk reaction, at least I find in myself and I can see exhibited in a lot of my friends and people at large is like, well, it's, it's bad if you don't know the answer. And, and unlearning that, I think, is really crucial. And you can tell when it hasn't been. Yeah, this is such a tricky topic. And I actually... I don't know what to think about it. Because, like, so, for example, I often take this position that... And I, I pretty much bring this up in a lot of episodes, I think. Where I, I think that... Like this kind of humbleness, it is, uh, I'm trying to think, I'm losing it. Well, basically, I think that, uh, I basically argue that we should stop stigmatizing um, wrong ideas straight out. Like, it kind of depends what the idea is, maybe, but, um, like, mm. I, I feel that there's so much that we learn through exploration or so much that we could be learning that we're not doing because of like, like, so for example, the thing I'm obsessed with lately is this idea that like so much of our society is just authority and expert hierarchies where like, you're not really even supposed to think thoughts. There are like certain realms in which you're allowed to think thoughts, like maybe, in uh, social drama would probably be like one of the biggest ones I could think of. But in terms of like anything else about the world, like being curious about like science-y type things or the way the world works, it's like kind of conditioned out of us after childhood. And um, if someone has like an idea, like say Flat Earth, like what if instead of mocking those people and insulting them and like bullying them we just entertain their points and like take them seriously and actually like weed it out and debate the whole thing you know and um 
so I usually am a proponent of just kind of not stigmatizing ideas just for being wrong. But I sometimes am like wondering, like, I feel like the reason that that exists is because certain wrong ideas probably killed a bunch of people in the past. And so like when a society didn't have enough people that were resisting uh, wrongfulness or taking more like maybe a conservative approach that perhaps those societies collapsed or something. I don't know. Like you could see it, like say like liberal technologies and stuff like that. It's like we invent some new thing and then the conservatives are like, no, this is bad. What are you guys doing? And then like the technologists though, they're like, let's just do it. And then like, I feel like right now we're seeing, we're seeing like social media kind of unravel society potentially. <laughs> right. And mm. so it's like, I don't know. Actually, I'm kind of curious. What do you think about that notion? Because I know you said you worked at, or you work at Facebook. So mm. what do you think? Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's a couple of things. Because uh, um, I think we went over uh, quite a few subjects there that were really interesting. And I want to touch yeah, on those first and then I'll get to that. Yeah. Yeah. I think the first bit of like, okay, well, um, you know, what do we do with contrary opinions and ideas? And I do really like the approach of doing your best to hear them out and, you know, following what we talked about earlier, meeting the person where they are. And I think there's a way to disagree with someone respectfully and get your point across without demeaning them as a person or devaluing them and, and leaving them feeling hurt. Although at the end of the day, you can't really control how they feel. Only they can control how they feel. And you'll find people who will get hurt over nothing yeah. all the time. And so, but but the, I think the, the point is to to do your best um, to strike the balance between getting your point across and not, you know, weaponizing it. Um, totally. You know, and, and, and you're going to fuck up sometimes and that's fine too, right? But I, I think it's it's about, you know, just getting better at that and um, and putting the effort forward. And I think the more people who do that and who enter these types of conversations with good intent rather than bad intent, which I think is the separator between what we were talking about, um, the better off we'll be. Right. And I, and I think conversations like this really help, especially with an audience, you know. Um, so. So, yeah, I, I think that's really important. And then the next bit is on I think we're touching on the realm of, of sense making, which is like, OK, well, how do we actually go about that in a way that solves the problem of, OK, well, what do we do now with all of our resources? Like, how do we allocate our resources? What's a good um, direction ahead as as a society or maybe as an individual and um, that same resource allocation problem is I think what causes people to be like fuck this I'm not paying any attention to the stupid flat earth thing because I only have so much energy right yeah, that makes sense um, and, and so the question is well where do I put it and in are some ideas so detrimental to society that it'll cause them to collapse I think yeah like history has proven that like just look at Soviet Russia right look at Maoist China um, you know, the body count is through the roof and we never talk about those. Like, and, you know, the easy one is pointing at Nazi Germany, right? Um, but, but yeah, there, there's a lot of isms <laughs> yeah, right. that seem to, to, to not do so well for the majority of the population and, and the nation that implements them. Um, so we'll see what happens with communist China, but that's a whole nother conversation. <laughs> yeah, it's getting interesting so far. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but, but any, anyway, so, so then 
you know, what do you do about it, right? Like, at what point does an idea become something that needs to be dealt with, right? And then, and then, and how do you deal with it, right? And I think the best way to deal with a bad idea is to come up with a better idea, and to have that discussion with good intent. But it's really tricky if there's only like one way good intent, right? Like, if the other guy is coming in with bad intent and he just tries to, you know, defame you and you know, devalue you as a person, and you, you know, you could see that with. Um, with, with Trump and Hillary, right, in the debates for a while, he was just doing, you know, character assassination. And it works when you have an audience of the general population. Um, but it doesn't work if you're actually trying to get to the right answer. And that's when things get really tricky. Because if your opponent is willing to stoop to that level, then if you don't, you'll probably just get killed. And then so if your goal was implement the best idea, then you failed at that. Right. So it's, it's a really tricky world out there. Um, and, and you can see that manifest in, in business competitions, uh, like the way, you know, if look, if you're in a market where there's five corporations, you're, you're one out of five and all four of them are cheating using tax loopholes, they're going to have that much more money to spend on R and D and they'll outpace you and you'll eventually get, you know, natural selection out of the market. So, if you want your business to stay around and to employ all the people you do and, you know, to hopefully be the guy who is in, who does have good intent and is able to steer things the right way based off of your morals, which you think are correct, then maybe the morally right thing is to follow the market and follow their, their practices, even how illegal they may be. Cause if you don't, then you're dead. Um, so it's really hard to like, white knight the situation right and say like no this is the right thing to do um when you're when you're in a world that's that's full of people not doing that and and they're your competition and they will eat you up um so and i think that's where i think that's where a lot of these big companies end up and now to tie it to to facebook right um i i don't know how much i can <laughs> comment on on all of it but yeah you might you know i i see you're trapped yeah. because uh you'll lose your job no i'm just kidding <laughs> i don't think i will um i, I think i can i can I, I, yeah i think that they're fine with me yeah i bet <laughs> talking about things it's just i, I probably do need to clear I are they asking are, are they telling you to say that though no i'm just kidding <laughs> yeah i've actually got a guy he's, he's, he's right over my shoulder with a gun in my head <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> holding up flashcards um yeah i think like we technically have like a speaking team i'd probably have to clear stuff with but i can give like general things i think without getting in trouble and like look the way i see social media is it's you know and i think it's similar to discord in that it's it's just a platform right which has kind of been becoming a little more editorialized and that's its own double-edged sword right because um, then the question is like, okay, what information is actually creating danger and what isn't? And then also it's like, well, what do you mean by danger? What do you mean by harm? Right? Some people are out there saying, well, words are violence. And it's like, well, no, it's not. Like, have you ever been punched in the face? That's violence. Words are, they can hurt, but not like that, you know? Um, and and so there, there's definitely a big gray area that's really challenging to navigate. And I, and I think, you know, I, I think overall Mark's doing a decent job given all the pressures that, because there, there's the pressures are basically what I was mentioning before, which is you can go in with the best intent possible, right? But the world is such a crazy complex place that 
all of these things that you might not have thought about or noticed will come in and just, you know, completely change the direction of your company without you, even if you don't do anything, right? Standing still is, is essentially going backwards. Um, and sometimes there is no right answer. There's just the least wrong answer. And then making that decision is extremely challenging, right? Like you'll get you know, reports from all of your VPs that have had, you know, they've been edited a million times over by everybody down the food chain to whoever the manager was in charge, right? All the way up. And, you know, so you don't even know how accurate that report will be on the trade-offs for the decision that you're about to make. Um, and then when you get to like the level of scale that a Facebook's at, like, dude, there's 2.2-ish, four, something like that, billion people on it. Uh, like you can't even begin to comprehend that number, right? Yeah. Like a football stadium is like 50,000, right? So multiply that by a thousand, right? And then now, okay, we're at 50 million and then double that, right? So now we're at, at doubling, we're at, uh, you know, like just how many people is that in your head, right? It's insane. And then, so yeah, you, you double that and you multiply it by like another thousand and then you double it again. And you're like, what the fuck? Like, that's insane. Yeah. You, it, wow. it, like, and, and so, like, so how do you like govern that? Right. That's the question being asked. And, and it's, it's really challenging. And, um, what's reassuring to me is I think, I think a lot of people are thinking about it the right ways. I think there's a pretty, and I'm not a hundred percent on this, but there seems to be enough balancing viewpoints at the highest level that the decisions that come out of it, I think have at least been thought through thoroughly. Um, I don't always agree with all of them and I do agree with some of them. Right. Um, but I think they've been thought through well, right? If there's one thing that group does is they think things through very well. Um, and, and they're, they're also aware of interests and in, in market forces and things that are well outside the realm of my perception. And I think everybody else's. You know, they all, they have access to information like nobody else on the planet, you know, outside of like uh, intelligence agencies, right? Um, and they're getting some of it from intelligence agencies. Like there's, I'm sure there's many times when the FBI or CIA is like, hey, dude, you got to do this. Why? Because of something that you had no idea that was going on in the geopolitical realm. Um, mm. So, yeah, it's immensely complex. Um, but then as, as a platform, right, it, it, it's like, I think overall it does way more good than bad, right? I think there's been yeah. some, some billions of dollars raised for charity every year since they launched like the donation thing. Right. And that's insane already. Like again, a billion dollars is like a nearly unfathomable sum of money. Um, and yeah, you could spend it if you thought about how like real hard you go buy some satellites, but like basically look, you're never, that's an incredible amount of money to do so much in the world. Um, it's an insane economic engine. Right. So, so we make, I think it's like 60 billion a year or, and we're on our way to hundred billion dollars a year in, in advertising revenue. Right. And you think, Oh, fucking ads. Right. But it's like, well, well what's behind an ad? Right. Behind an ad is Wish. in the majority of cases, a small business, right. Run by people, right. You know, someone with 10 to 40 employees and they're paying us enough, you know, to, to get their ads to be effective and they're seeing more return than what they're putting in. So they're getting value out of it, right? They're finding customers who want their products and these aren't, no one's forcing anyone to buy anything, right? 
Yeah. Like unless, unless you have, you know, people, some people are shopping addicts, right? Let's be fair. And, um, but generally speaking, no one's holding a gun to your head and saying, buy these pants. Right. Yeah. This is someone who wants the pants. This is someone who wants like the gourmet sauce or, you know, the ring or whatever it is. Right. And, and so they're connecting someone who has the thing that someone else wants and they're, and they're being connected to the tune of well more than $60 billion a year, because again, they're getting more value than they're putting in. And in fact, they're often getting like five, 10, 20, hundred times the value they put in. So the, the level at which Facebook is an economic engine is just, it's unparalleled. Um, there is, and there's a lot of like tearful success stories that marketing teams like to find and use to show us how good we're doing. But, you know, yeah, there, there, there's just a lot of that. And then on the flip side, right, there's all of the, okay, since when did we become the arbiters of free speech? Right. And then there's like a decision that was made to outsource that. Right. And it was because, well, we shouldn't be the arbiters of free speech. It's like, who should? And should this council be? Right. It's basically a council of like, quote, experts who apparently were very well vetted, but they all seem to have their own political biases either direction. Um, and what okay sorry i, I got a, a oh, funny thing <laughs> um someone okay I, I don't know if it's a joke or not i hope it is um but and anyway um yeah so so it's like yeah how, how do we handle that it's a really tricky space to to try to moderate essentially right two point whatever billion people and who all have different they all are from different countries with different laws and different definitions of like whatever else right it's 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 an insane space to be in and and i think but the good news is i think everyone's making their best effort um so so i'm, I'm hopeful from that perspective so i have some ideas about what you've said um so yeah i think that it's not necessarily that facebook is the problem with everything or that social media is the problem well i think it's basically that we found ourselves in what i would say is a kind of transitional phase but it's it's a very rough transitional phase and i think that basically basically what seems to have happened is well there's like a couple things i think that social media and just the internet in general has totally accelerated um the rate at which people can change their minds and learn new things uh, to the point that there is there's either a lot more disagreement now or this brings us to the next problem is that now everyone is completely exposed to each other's disagreeing ideas whereas before society was kind of just in the darkness and everybody was in under this illusion that that maybe like mainstream television represents reality or something but i think it's kind of a combination of both and um i think also that so much of our structure of society has been based on just geographic kind of relativity and proximity to and kind of just the flow of where different kinds of people are going where there wasn't it's like everyone's kind of protected in a weird, in a sense, I would say that is an echo chamber in a sense that used to exist in the real world. 
where like your job space or the supermarket you go to or your neighborhood or all the things about your life, they're kind of contained in these repetitious loops that don't interlock with other certain communities that have their own repetitious mm. loops. And society, or no, the internet has kind of now just smashed everything together into these comment sections and everyone is more able to speak their mind and um, new ideas are kind of evolving really fast too. Like I feel that probably atheism, uh, feminism, uh, social justice generally, uh, all different kinds of movements probably are like uh, being facilitated by the internet and then they're getting kind of uh, culty now in a way. Like they're kind of... Uh, I think they're not all of them. I think there's like probably actually more people that are more open-minded than there are people who are like very radicalized and stuff. I think it's just that the radicals are the ones that uh, are exciting to look at probably. And they're the loudest. Um, yeah, exactly. And uh, yeah, they're like walking advertisements, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In, in their own way. Um, and yeah, there's a, there's a great South Park about that. Um, yeah, yeah, it, it's interesting having you know the, the cultures that were previously isolated now at least digitally not be, right? Yeah. And and cultures are, are interesting things, right? Because they like what's at the bottom of a culture is you know doing what worked for our community, and by what, what worked, I mean like that didn't cause us to self destruct, right? Yeah. <laughs> that's that's the true bottom of it, right? And, and that's going to differ based off of the initial conditions, right? The, the people who are there, the personalities and so on, as well as I'm sure many other things that I don't, I don't know. Um, and, but then when you erase those boundaries, like things get really interesting and you get stuff like, you know, uh, you know, Japan had a very insular culture, right? For a long time, they're on an Island and they didn't let people in and that's how they were able to maintain a lot of it. And then but now everything's kind of moving towards, um, like Commercial. a, a, a sh yeah, yeah, yeah. Commerciality is definitely a part of it. I, I was going to say like a shared mean uh, between various different cultures. Like everyone's kind of averaging out slowly, but yeah. And and then and and I don't know whether that's good or bad, right? There's certainly some aspects of modern culture that are fantastic, and I think you know to the fact that people are focusing on social justice, I think as a whole, is a good thing. I don't agree necessarily with how it's executed a lot. Um, yeah. But, but at least the conversations being had, um, I, I, you know, I don't like the echo chamber aspects of a lot of things. I, I think, you know, I think they could work well if what happened is everybody, you know, in the echo chamber got together and they said, we need to come up with the strongest version of our ideas and ideology. And then we'll go have them compete with, the other side's ideologies, but in a way that's open-minded and constructive. And then we could take the parts that work best together and combine them. Right. That's how I would like to see something get built. And that's typically how I get shit done at work. You know, a bunch of different stakeholder teams who all want different stuff. It's like, wait, okay, well, I'm sure we can find an answer that actually does work for everybody in the majority of cases. And there'll be a few trade-offs, but, but you know, generally everyone's happy. Um, are a lot happier than they were anyway, right? And that's pretty much the best thing you can ask for. Um, and and so I think, you know, forums where people can do so are going to be really critical in, in helping us move forward in a positive way because otherwise, like you said, it gets culty. And 
you know, once you get culty and once you get dogmatic and full of, you know, just, just unsubstantiated garbage at that point, and then egos get involved and, like, you get all these celebrity people who are, you know, influencers on either end and, you know, their interests are no longer just to find the best answer, but it's also, okay, how can I do that while maintaining my popularity and my income and, you know, the yeah. interests get conflicted. Um, so... <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. Um, there was something you said a while back that uh, we kind of moved on a bit from it, but I wanted to add that um, it was the idea about how we shame people who are wrong. Um, it we I think that we essentially incentivize people to. Um, do things like doubling down and uh, becoming stubborn or uh, lying even or using like fallacies and just like all kinds of things. I think the way that being wrong is punished means that it's better to cheat in the situation instead, basically. Mm -hmm. like, um, I don't know, but that's something I've kind of felt. So, so I'm thinking... Or wait, I don't know. Do you want to keep talking about this topic of... Uh, I don't know. Do you want to switch topics or do you want to keep going with where we're at? Um, I'm enjoying this. So I could also move on. Um, I, yeah, I just wanted to at least touch on the last thing you mentioned, like the incentivization to double down and not be wrong. Like I think that's, again, tying back into the way we've been programmed since we were kids in school. Yeah. Right. Like you get it wrong. You miss a point. Oh no, I got an A minus. Like my family's going to be so ashamed. Right. And it's just, um, yeah, it, it's, it's baked in. But then I, one antidote to that, which I have been trying to apply in my life is realizing like, Oh, okay. It's not about being right in the short term. It's about being right in the long term. Totally. In order to be right in the long term, I need to be willing to be wrong in the short term. Right. So you need, so it's, it's, it's all about expanding your perspective. Right. And, and I think a lot of our societal and individual problems come from short-term thinking versus long-term thinking. Right. And, and if you don't begin to build the habit in you of saying like, Oh, okay, you know, maybe I'm wrong here. And then that'll help you. And realizing like, look, you're never, you don't lose when you're wrong. You learn when you're wrong. You don't learn when you're right. That just reinforces what you already knew. You didn't get anything new out of it. Yeah. It's and, a reputation. Yeah, yeah, but then the the reputation, right? And I think it's because people are still thinking in terms of short term wins that they value people who seem to be right all the time in the short term, right? And I think if we begin to shift the way that people are thinking about being right to long term thinking, then you know people will be more okay with others and themselves making mistakes, and, and they should be, because again, you get back to like the shit you know, shit you don't know, and shit you don't know, you don't know. Right. Like you're going to be wrong. Like often if you're really pushing it into the realm of the truly unknown. Yes. Like that's natural. Right. Like when a kid is trying to learn how to ride a bike and he falls off, do you hit the kid and say, fuck you. That was a horrible <laughs> move. Don't fall off the bike. Yeah, right. No. <laughs> right. It's the same thing. We're just riding intellectual bikes. Yeah. And falling off itself is already kind of a punishment in itself. Oh yeah. Yeah. Cause you're going to feel it. Cause you're, you're programmed to, to feel bad when you get wrong, when you, when you do something wrong. Right. And there's, there's both, 
you know, cultural and societal programming. There's also, I think, evolutionary programming. Because if you like, look, if when you're when we're out hunting, right? If you miss the deer and that was your only arrow, now you don't eat, right? Yeah. Or you might not eat that day, right? So it's it's baked into us. You know, it's so so it's natural, is I guess my point. But you can you can choose to exacerbate it or not, or you can choose to recognize that there's also paradoxically value in in missing the target and learning from that. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I feel feel like sometimes like how i mentioned earlier i said i have sort of mixed feelings about this topic because there might be some sort of balance where this kind of illogical way of uh like shaming ideas maybe there is some kind of role despite the fact that the 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 kind of the beneficial effect, maybe it's like an evolutionary beneficial. It's not maybe, I don't know if it's beneficial on other levels, but uh, it might be something that, uh, oh man, I lost my train of thought. But but basically, I think, I don't know, there might be like some sort of balance where it's beneficial in other ways, despite the fact that it's bad for intellectualism or even this idea. Like lately, I sometimes find myself wondering if intellectualism was just the wrong thing. <laughs> like, like sometimes I think that, well, like when we think of the idea that ch children are kind of living in this like innocent, more pure reality before all of these great societal and even like traumas within their families and just all these things before they set in it's like life seems pretty good it's kind of the ignorance is bliss thing right and um i wonder if the state of reality is just so kind of i don't know there's clearly so many bad things, right? Like we, we figure out, oh, we must die. And a lot of things are dangerous. And uh, we're probably going to see a bunch of our friends and family die. Everyone's going to like suffer. And like, just like, you could just like, mm -hmm. I feel like kind of, I don't know. There's just growing up. It's like you're basically learning how to cope with realizing that reality has many bad things in it i guess mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and i feel yeah, like well, I think it's, oh sorry well i'll just say one last sentence like i feel like the more that we like philosophize like like what if society is even just collapsing because people are becoming more aware of their own of all the unfairness and all of the wrongness about reality like maybe that's good maybe that will cause society to collapse and we'll build some kind of crazy utopia or maybe we'll resort to cannibalism and eat the rich and just <laughs> mutilate everyone right i don't know oh, yeah. that's, that's the happy ending for sure yes you mean the first one right or, this, or do you mean the second one <laughs> the, the cannibalism is the happy ending for sure. yes yes <laughs> um, yeah, well, I think that's a good segue into like death and afterlife and stuff. Um, and, and I also saw there's a um, Lovetron 9000 wants to learn more about work strategies that I employ. And I think what would make the most sense is to let the conversation flow as it is. And then at the end, if we have time, I'll, I'll come back to any, uh, I guess, questions people have for me.
Yeah, we could also, um, once it's done, we could probably, so there's like another channel above this discussion and everybody's basically allowed to talk there. So we could also like open the mics up and people can actually speak or whatever. Oh, sure. Cool. Well, so um, what do you think about the afterlife or is that what you're getting into? You said, right? Yeah. Yeah. And we we're talking about death and the perception of like, I guess, bad things and, um, so yeah, I, I guess when you look at death and the way that, that we typically view it, right. Or I guess for me that had been kind of baked in culturally, right. Growing up in California was like, all right, there's a bunch of somewhat kooky people who believe there's like a heaven or hell after you die. And then no, no, no. We as smart techie people, we understand that, uh, there is definitely no life after death. You get one shot. Right. And and from that perspective, it can make life seem, yeah, or death seem kind of sad, right? It's like, oh, shit, like, that's it. They're gone. Um, yeah. But then, you know, we're you know, in, the, in the Christian worldview of, okay, well, they, they go to heaven or hell. And like, oh, Jesus Christ, you had to avoid hell. Um, and if they go to heaven, I can see them, right? And that's a whole other thing, right? And, and motivational factors and incentives to act a certain way. Um, what... What I've also found interesting is figuring out, you know, other cultures view on mortality and death. And, and one that really intrigues me and resonates with me is, and, and I think begins to resonate a lot with, um, I almost want to say like my basic understanding of quantum science, which is, you know, that, you know, beyond the physical, or you could say intertwined in, or even maybe in a sense more real than the physical is the, the metaphysical. Right. And then, OK, well, then what's the metaphysical realm like? And when the physical body dies, do you lose your metaphysical self is, is another interesting question to, to, to ask. And, you know, my speculation is I don't think you do. Right. And, and I think that aligns with a lot of, um, you know, ancient religions. And I think part of, you know, even you know, the biggest ones kind of talk about that, too, which is, you know, the, I guess you'd call it the, the nature of spirit. Right. And, and what's what's up with that? And. You know, the, the Buddhists and, and the Taoists are all convinced that, you know, you just kind of go back into wherever you were before you were born, right, is, is roughly the, the way I'd summarize. And I'm, there's probably someone who knows way more than I do, and that's uh, shaking their fist at me right now. But, um, you know, and it's kind of like, well, where is your mind, right? You can't point at it. You can't touch it. feels like you have one. But when you say one, like, what do you mean by that? And like, you can point out some characteristics like it. Um, it feels like something that is, uh, what would you call it? Non-local, right? But but able, but influenced by local stimuli. And um, if you, you know, you think of a dream, right? And that can be like all over the goddamn place. So, you know, also influenced by other stimuli you might not be consciously aware of. Um and, and, you know, I don't you, you, there's, there's so many weird, like you can, you can kind of mold the shapes in it, right? If you consciously are trying to imagine something, but then also stuff just kind of flies in and flies out, right? You get the whole conscious versus subconscious thing. And, you know, then there's the other question of like, okay, well, is if there's a subconscious, is there then like a super conscious, which is, you know, the consciousness that resides in everything, the, um, the big field of awareness, right? And then you look at, um, my understanding of quantum physics and it's saying, oh, there is kind of like this, there's a unified field theory out there, right? That's saying something very similar to what the psychoanalysts and, um, 
and also what all of the people who go in a cave and meditate for you know decades say which is yeah there is a big field of it out there um and i've had my own experiences with that you know in, in, in various ways and i think it's my my perception of the people in here is probably a lot of them have had too and and so then okay well if that exists like how does that change your perception of death and and other you know quote bad things that we were programmed to believe are bad and it's not to say like you know losing a loved one isn't sad i'm sure it's absolutely crushing um you know and um and it's not it's not to trivialize any of that either right and, and i don't think trivializing emotions are ever the right thing to do and that's not something i ever intend to do and so if i come off that way that's not it's not my intention um but but it does for me change okay well what then what do i do with life right can i reorient the way i act um in a way that takes that into account right and you look at christianity as one way of doing so because they say oh after this is a different life and what you do here influences that and you know the concept of karma is is similar in some ways right where it's you know your actions have consequences that's essentially what karma is it's saying doing you know doing some doing stuff but gets more stuff right yeah action action creates more action um and yeah so it's like how how do you build a framework in your head that lets you or how, how do you reframe your existing framework do you even um and for me i found it it makes a lot more sense to to feel like the metaphysical will will last despite the, the absence of the physical and then for me you know the this is a watsism where he's like look when you die it, it stands to reason that it's just like it was before you were born and i don't remember that being so bad yeah i think um so i have some points so there after this i think i'll make uh, there's a point i wanted to make about consciousness and um well first i'm gonna i'm gonna respond to what you've said about the afterlife and then i, I guess like maybe after all of that we could uh go to the next channel after you make a response to whatever i say about all that stuff sure so um kind of what i think I guess, hmm, about the afterlife, well, first, consciousness, it kind of ties in, um, hmm, so, I'm not entirely convinced that, uh, like, the person that, the, the state of this consciousness that is, uh, that was present in myself when I started this uh, sentence I'm not really convinced that that is the same one that is saying what I'm saying right now I think that that could be an illusion like that uh, like the thought experiment that I've had is if you imagine that uh, we could be trading consciousnesses right uh, like soul swapping in a sense and uh, I think we wouldn't notice. The illusion would be that our memory, our short-term memory, and our biology are just completely feeding us this these stimuli and information and reasoning that that 
we must have been conscious the whole time. But I feel like in reality, we're only conscious in like this really tiny sliver in the present. And like, for all I know, we're continuously just dying and dying and dying. <laughs> and mm. we would never notice this. We would actually be convinced that we've been alive the whole time. <laughs> and um, It's kind of like spooky, but it's also... I don't know if that's reassuring. I, I know that we aren't going to care either way, right? We're, we're probably not going to care after we die either. Um, yeah, well, who will be there to care is a good question. And exactly. what, what, you're, what you're hinting at, right, the, the momentary births and deaths are exactly what is described in the, um, you know, the, the, the sound ohm, right? And there's a really interesting thing is like the uh, i can't remember who the god of creation is like is it like vishnu or something like that and is the o part and then when you get to om that's uh glorifying shiva the the god of destruction and so the way i think about that is you know so these are the people who spent however many centuries studying consciousness by using consciousness right you know yeah. they did not they basically did nothing else except like poke around right yeah um and and they came and they came up with that and they say ohm is the fundamental sound of the universe it's what it's doing and um quantum theory seems to or at least science seems to point to the same thing which is the the wave-like nature of of particles when they're well, i mean before they're particles or when they're not particles i suppose right they're waves and you know you could think of the the neutral zero point as being and then below that, I guess, would be the off position. And then you have the on position, which is the above zero point. And ohm is going from the O, which is the zero. And then you hit the O at the top. And then mm, as it, you know, heads back towards the zero point. And so it's 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 a sound that describes the on-offness of the universe. Um, Watts would call it playing hide and seek, right? It's here, it's not. It's here, it's not. It's here, it's gone. Where'd it go? I don't know, right? But it seems to be that I don't know part is is like the you know the proverbial backside um the dark side of of the universe that we can't consciously see or access but you know seems to be there but also not there at the same time and maybe it's so nothing that it, it includes everything um another fun philosophical way of thinking about it is like look you you need to have a background in order for a foreground to exist right if, if everything was background, then there's no foreground. But then also at the same time, because there's no background, everything is foreground. Hmm. You don't have a way, there's no relative thing to measure it against. Everything becomes one thing without a second thing there to measure it against. And this is also um, pointed pointed at relativity, right? Is you don't actually have any clue where one object is without another object. And you have no idea how fast it's going or which direction without another one there or another two. Um, so these are, they seem to be necessary building blocks in order for an experience like the one we're having to exist. Um, and so, well then are when you go to the backside, right? Are you dead? I don't know. Right. What do you mean by dead? That's a tough one. Um, but definitely something, something fun to think about. Yeah. I'm a fan of reincarnation in a sense. Like, I feel that, well, I don't know. Sometimes I am thinking that there, the separation of us 
is actually an allusion to in a way or mm. i don't know it might be even more complicated than that i mean if it probably yeah. is but um yeah there's a good um uh perspective on that that, that watts has and it is comes from uh the taoists which is that we are as separate from each other as an ind individual wave is from another wave hmm. in that the waves are actually no separate from the ocean beneath it but they look distinct they have a unique look all of them actually that's a really interesting part like snowflakes every single wave is unique every single particle is unique as well that's uh, the poly exclusion principle in action um but everything is also connected at the same time and so what i think you run into is this beautifully paradoxical uh description of life where like look you know you're connected to people like dude just walk into a biker bar and you'll feel a certain way you'll feel the vibe and no one said yeah. anything or even maybe he looked at you you'll just feel it's different right you know versus walking like a rose garden or something else right there's a subtle realm of experience that exists and you know seems to be shared between people um so so yeah then the question is like okay where do you draw the line between saying who you are right true yes and, and, and someone else and like look you're if you pay any attention at all you'll you'll realize that your closest friends have their personality traits rub off on you and vice versa you know there's a, a saying out there that you're the average of your five closest friends right and so so clearly we influence each other greatly to the point where we start acting like each other you know and then you begin to expand that outwards and you get you know your, your family your friends your closest circles and then to your community your town your city and your country and eventually the world now that we have the internet um and so so yeah we're all connected but we seem to be having some sort of centralized local experience right like in your practical day-to-day -day life like unless you're really paying attention to it it just feels like you got a couple legs hopefully right and yeah. you're doing your thing yeah and like if i were to learn how to affect other people um i feel like that's not really different than if i learn how to use my hands like if i'm a baby learning to use my body i feel like like you could add um you could like first learn to use your hands right then you learn to use your hands to control other objects but then you can also learn to use like say your voice to control other people and like what if i got so in tuned mm. to doing that that those other people are literally pretty much just extensions of me right so that would be, it's kind of like a freaky thing but mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. that's kind of what we already are in a sense like especially social species like humans and stuff um so there's another idea that this might totally be random, but it's something I want to bring up just because it's it's related to consciousness, but I don't know if it... It feels like something that I don't imagine to start any other... I don't know. It, it's, it seems like it's something that it'd just be like, ah, oh, okay, interesting, or like, I don't know. But anyways, so... Uh, I have this idea that I've been kind of like trying to, like at some point I'm trying to write it up and f 
find like I have an argument about like kind of neurochemistry related stuff to this point, but it's basically the idea that I think that we probably could have evolved this type of consciousness that we experience for some reason, right? Some reason that helps us. And I think that is probably to solve problems or to just observe. Maybe observation itself is what's happening. And um, I think that that isn't something that we always need, though. I think that uh, the role of observation is to help us learn how to react to those observations in ways that bring us what we want. And if we learn how to get what we want, I actually think that it reduces our tendency to observe uh, what is there anymore. And so, mm -hmm. for example, um, well, basically the idea is that I think we are conscious so that we can learn about the world and use it. And then once we learn about the world, I think we actually reduce consciousness. Like, we basically enter autopilot. We learn how to not be mm. aware of things. Like, we can perhaps ride a bike with our eyes closed or something like that. It's mm -hmm. like we, we literally don't have to observe anymore. And then that kind of makes, potentially it makes room for other uh observations and other things that you could be paying attention to and so like mm -hmm. the way that we develop might be that uh, we might start off being incredibly conscious and this is kind of this idea that i keep throwing around called the phoenix effect it's basically the idea that psychedelics induce the child or the infant state of mind and so i think that it kind of draws back our conditioned state of reacting to the world like when you take mm. these things it uh rips away our habitual automatic autopilot state and then mm -hmm. we're kind of forced and rushed into the present moment and to our senses and to observation again which then i think what kind of happens is that even the way that we structure our perception and our life and the way that we perceive and assume things to be true is a conditioned state too. So we end up seeing our perception perhaps kind of collapse and uh, we go backwards into this kind of unconditioned and unassuming, uh, more like raw, pure kind of state of perception where things you, you no longer look at something and you're like, yep, I know what that is. That is something based mm. on the repetitious uh, observations that I made in the past. And now it's like, holy crap, what am I looking at? Where am I? What is all this stuff? And like, you just kind of go back into the observer mode. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that, that all resonates with me. And I've, I, 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 I have, I think, some supporting perspective to add to that, right? And so I, I think what's that raw, unfiltered life, right, is what the, the Taoists would call the, the natural flow of, of life, which is, you know, this basically a, what, essentially a giant river of incoming stimuli, right? Mm -hmm. um, where you're, you're surrounded by it, you're in it. And the question is, you know, what do you differentiate out of it, right? And you can reach this undifferentiated state through 
you know, a variety of means psychedelics will do it, you know, at a certain dose and then meditation can do it too. And, um, babies I'm pretty sure are like that as well. And it just makes sense because they haven't figured out what differentiations to make. Yeah. And the question is, well, like, okay, well, what differentiations, differentiations are we making? And it seems to be, um, so, you know, a bunch of science points to that. We're, we're actually picking out tools for everything. And this is aligned exactly to what you were saying, which is a means to an end. That's a tool. Yeah. Right. Exploitation. I have a goal. Right. And it could be as, as little as I want to sit down. Right. And mm-hmm. so, you, you know, you know what a chair kind of looks like in abstract, but like the same neural patterns fire off when someone looks at a, a tree stump. If they're yeah. looking for a chair. Right. And it's like, you know, good luck teaching an AI that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so but a four year old can do it. Right. Um, yeah. At a better rate than a computer can. So. So it's 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 finding tools for the your your goal, right? We're definitely goal setting creatures, right? It could be eat, right, or just not die broadly. And then we have a lot of different goals, um, and some of them conflict, and some of them don't. We resolve the conflicts, and we figure out from there, okay, what do I do, right, in order to reach my goals? Um, given I understand them to the degree that I can simultaneously. Um, and, and I think what the psychedelics do is they, they sort of remove what I would call filters, right? Because in order to identify the tool, you need to block out everything else in your awareness, right? Mm-hmm. And, I, and, we build, and I think we do build up, and I think it's just neurologically shown, you know, we, we build up certain pathways, right? That become, the, the, they call it the default mode network, right? Which yeah. is just, you know, what fires naturally, because we naturally need to conserve energy. Right. And, and that's why we lose that consciousness because it takes a lot of effort to be taking in everything at full volume. Right. Yep. You know, your, your brain actually burns the most calories out of any singular organ. Um, and, it, and so it's not efficient to be in that state of everything full blast all the time. Right. You, you're, you're more likely to, to get killed as a matter of fact, right. By a predator. If you're, you know, using all your energy on like the first two minutes of the day or two hours, right? Whatever. Um, you're, you're not going to be able to do that. And so I think it's, it's a natural evolutionary outcome for us to, to reduce that. Um, and, and I think returning to that, I guess you could call it more like neuroplastic state, right? Can be beneficial in a lot of ways, especially if your programming is no longer um, serving you as it should. Um, but, but yeah, the, uh, the the way that's described in you know these these religions is like look there's like the ocean with the waves right there's this kind of undifferentiated river of experience and and senses coming at us all the time and our body sort of acts as a filter for that and we start to understand like okay like say you're looking at a river you recognize a, a whirlpool by some rocks one day right and you come back and you see it the next day and you see it the next day and you're like okay that's the whirlpool but it's like, wait, but the water in the whirlpool is different every single time. In fact, it's changing constantly. But you still recognize it as the whirlpool, right? Just as you said a, a bit ago, right? Like your, your level of consciousness right now, you're, you're a different person entirely than you were a second ago, much less five minutes, much less a year ago, right? Yeah. And so just like the whirlpool, the, the contents are constantly shifting. But you still are, you can recognize the form of the whirlpool. And... You know, maybe one day later, the, the whirlpool goes away. You go, oh, I missed that whirlpool, right? But maybe a month or two later, it comes back. 
or a different one that looks kind of like it, or maybe the exact same one. They go, oh, it's back. But it's like, well, what do you mean by it? Right, right? exactly. It's, an, you know, like, how do you how do you define where the thing starts and stops? It's some um, obscure pattern. Yeah, yeah, or maybe not not so crazy obscure, because we, we learn to recognize people, right? And we say, okay, there's that, right? You know, there's that person, I, I recognize them. Um, so obscure enough where it's unique, but not so obscure that you can't, you know, recognize it. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, and that, that's also like another metaphor for every dying, right? If the whirlpool comes back and it's kind of reincarnated in a sense, isn't it? Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. And that's what the Taoists have to say about people. Like, yeah, maybe you do. And maybe in the many worlds. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh no, I was getting impulsive. Uh, Finish what you're saying, actually. Uh, no, I, I'll I'll wrap up. I was just saying, like, and you know, that I know someone in chat was, um, what 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 would you say? It uh, didn't seem to be, or it seemed to be a little suspicious of things like information theory, but of information ever dying. But you know, even the the Taoists who have no concept of information theory are saying, like, look, you're just like the whirlpool. Maybe you'll come back. Maybe you won't. Um, maybe there's an alternate universe in the multiverse, you know, whole theory where, where you are alive. Right. Um, and it's just far more complex than we can imagine. Yeah. I think I sometimes wonder, like if I say I'm riding my bike, there's some brain activity, right? When I stop this, I wonder if that part of me just like, or at least some part of me, whatever brain activity stops maybe that has died <laughs> maybe and then it comes back to life the next time i engage in that process or something mm. and so like every think moment it is. it's like just dying and like different parts of us maybe even too and yeah mm. mm-hmm. i I'm, I'm now i just got a, a funny thing popped pop in my head of you know the the off position of the waveform right it's just putting whatever thing was out away into the cosmic drawer. And when you mm. need it again, you open the drawer and you pull it out. Yeah, interesting. Hmm. Should we should we move this to discussion now? Yeah, I'm happy to do that. Okay. This will get pretty interesting, I think. So if everybody could move on to the discussion channel and uh we should i'm gonna like i'm gonna actually turn your guys volume down before i do that just in case because that makes it harder to edit okay so i'm going over there feel free to uh unmute yourself and question hello uh morgan hello hello How's it going? I'm pretty good. How are you? You're some dope beats, but I can't hear anyone talk. Oh, really? Can you hear you me? Can't? I can hear the music. Music? I don't actually hear music. I don't That's hear any music. Oh, shit. You know what? Ha. It was My SoundCloud started playing in the background. Oh, okay, okay. And I was like, who's the troll in here playing music? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Surprise, it's me. Yeah. <laughs> So, so I missed uh, the intro. Uh, Hetzel, is it? Yeah, you can call me Derek. 
Yeah. Well, what's your background? Um, like professional? Uh, yes, yeah. Yeah, uh, so I've been working at Facebook for a little over three and a half years now. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I work on the business side um, as a program manager, and I, I manage global policies and data governance. Um, and then my, my hobby is learning and talking about this stuff. Okay. Um, can I ask you a Facebook uh, interface-related question, or is that too off-topic? No, go for it. Okay, so I work at the Caltech Owens Valley Radio Observatory. It's a radio observatory in California. And there is a Facebook page for the observatory that was auto-generated from the Wikipedia article for mm. uh, the observatory. And it's existed for several years, and people have tagged it in a bunch of photos and posts and stuff like that. So there's a lot of content attached to this page. And I would like to get control of it so that I can run it, but because it was auto-generated, I can't. Mm -hmm. I can't mm -hmm. claim it as a business like you can with a lot of other things. Any idea mm -hmm. if there's some way to get around that? Um, I don't know, but I can find out some, from someone who does what to do. Why okay. don't you? Why don't you email me? Okay. Um, right. with you know your 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 name, your email address, maybe some like. I don't know, like if you have like an ID badge that proves you work there, okay. <laughs> like a picture, a picture of that, um, okay. and the, and the ID of the page. Okay. So give me those components, um, and then my email address. Uh, let me know when you're ready to write it down. Well, maybe you can, uh, uh, type it ready. Or I don't know. No, I, I got it. Yeah, I, I need to give him my work address actually, and, and that's. Um, work. Yeah, it's it's D as in dog. Okay. And then it's H. E, T as in Tom, Z as in zebra, L, E, R, and then that's Hetzler? at yeah. So D Hetzler, and that's at uh -huh. fb.com. Got it. All right, thanks, man. Sure. What's your first name? It's Derek. Derek. Okay. All right, I'll send that off. It's been plaguing me for quite a while now. <laughs> I bet. Oh, but I was really, I was really interested in what you said earlier about uh, your approach to work. Um, I was wondering if uh, I don't know if this isn't too off topic. If you could just talk about like some big challenges you faced and how you managed to navigate your way through them and turn it into a win. Mm. Yeah, that's um, that's a really good. Uh, if you ever become a candidate here, that's a really good question to ask whoever interviews you, by the way. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, that's like when, I, when people do that, I'm like, that's some good shit right there. Okay. Um, yeah, so I, I think it's pretty, it's fairly on topic relating to the beginning points of the conversation Gage and I were having, right? Which was, how do you reconcile um, differing viewpoints? Mm, and yeah. Um, a lot of my job is I'm, I'm kind of like a man in the middle. Um, I sit on a, you know, the kind of, we have like various operational teams and I sit on the global one. So we have like a really high vantage point and also we're trying to like figure out, okay, Asia wants to do this. Europe wants to do that. Like, how do we make sure everyone uh, harmonizes, um, what they're doing and at the same time meeting all their interests. And, um, I can't get into 
specifics without potentially getting in trouble, so I'm not going to. But I think the general approach is to, first of all, conduct yourself in a way that it makes it obvious that you have good intent, right? And and you're here to solve the problem. You're not here to make heroes or villains out of anybody, right? Like the, the, the question here is the issue at hand and, and confirming that everyone else is also aligned uh, to pointing at the problem, right? And then the next is, you know, always setting clear expectations up front, like, hey, look, you know, we're facing this issue in Asia. There's some problems with whoever, right? You know, we see the same thing beginning to happen in Europe. Um, you know, it's going to take me, you know, this many days to come up with a plan and then blah, 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 right? Um, you know, and, 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 and making sure that as, as you go to these people, right, and um, making sure that their needs feel heard is a really big thing. So that also takes, you know, it takes patience. It takes humility. Um, again, that, but if you have good intent, right, these things will come naturally because that's what you need to do to solve the problem is you need to hear what the problem is from the people who are closest to it. Um, which is a funny aside is why things like communism don't work because the people making the decisions are so far removed from the problem, um, that, you know, they'll never come up with a good solution. But so it's, it, you, you want to do the opposite here. You want to get as close as you can. Um, you want to make sure people are, are actually being heard and they're feeling heard. And sometimes those two things are different. Um, one is a, a, you know, making sure they feel heard requires like a lot of emotional awareness and intelligence. And again, that intention to want them to feel good. Right. And at the same time to temper their expectations and to set them in a realistic way is, is really important. Um, and then, you know, then you get into the technical bits of like, okay, how do we diagnose the problem? Like what actually is it? Can we diagnose this? What are the tools available to solve it? Do we need new tools or not? And then you, you know, you will lobby with the teams who build the tools because my team is a build tools. Um, and you explain the problem to them and you make sure you can, you know, you articulate it in, in a thorough yet uh, not overkill type of way. And so that's um, a tricky balance to strike as well. And then, you know, manage the process of, of getting the job done and keeping people up to date. Um, so, so yeah, it's basically relationship building and, um, you know, that's just general uh, project and stakeholder management beyond that. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. Have you ever faced a situation where the main problem is that people aren't telling you what they want? All the time. Yeah. We're like, <laughs> we're, or it's like, well, people, they're like, I have this problem and they, and they'll ask for something that won't actually really solve it. Um, and, and, and that's also okay <laughs> at the same time, right? Is it, if you're, it, it can be challenging to get boxed into a potential solution if you still don't have a problem uh, or if you still don't have a good grasp on the problem space, right? And it's, I, think, I find it's always better to just be like, hey, just give me your problems first. Don't give me what you think you need. Just give me your problems first, right? And this is actually how all the product teams here operate as well. They prefer to just be keep things at the problem level for a very long time. And that way you don't artificially, or you, you, you mitigate the risk of artificially boxing yourself in. Um, and, and so, yeah, and then you see what you come up with and, um, you know, maybe they add something that looks like that or, or not either way that you evaluate, is it going to meet the needs? Um, and then you always have the problem with them. Like, well, will they even be able to tell if it can meet their needs? And that doesn't always happen either. 
Uh, and so in, in those points, you know, you kind of got to operate off trust, right? And like trust that my incentives are aligned to yours, right? I want to solve your problem because we need to solve the problem for whatever reason, right? Um, and, and and that's where it really helps to have, you know, built up the relationships using the, the strategies I talked about in the past. Okay, cool. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. Also, I think my dad might have worked out of that same radio station when he was in grad school. No way. So, What's his name? Um, Steve Petzler. Steve Petzler? Oh, Hetzler. Uh, Petzler, yeah, my, my last name. Yeah. Um, uh, okay, I'll, I'll mention that name to my boss and see if they recognize it. Yeah, yeah, that'd be that'd be kind of cool. Um, but yeah. Uh, if I could get a questionage in. Um, uh, Please. I don't know. All right. Uh, so I'm trying. I have trouble formulating my thoughts because my head just jumps all over all over the place. So I'm gonna try to pinpoint it, but you might have to read between the lines of what I'm actually asking. Mm -hmm. um, so in terms of this trying to understand other person's needs, you get a, a weird situation sometimes where they don't know what they need. It's not that they can't ask you or they're not asking if they literally just don't know. Um, could you try to relate that to uh, your experiences in the like the aliens and the understanding of other cultures? Like you obviously know a little bit about um, uh, Eastern philosophy and that kind of thing. Has this helped with that problem of other people not actually being able to say what they need? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I think you, you actually said it first, which is reading between the lines. Um, <laughs> and it's a, it's a skill that I think involves um, some combination of, of intuition um, definitely emotional availability and, and trying to be open-minded as well as open-hearted. And I think that second bit is not really talked about a lot, unfortunately. Um, and, and that's where a lot of things tie in with, I think, you know, Western religion as well as Eastern, which is, you know, trying to be compassionate and follow the golden rule and treat others like you would like to be treated in that situation. And so using those as principles, trying to help and then I would move into trying to help suss out what the person really needs. And a lot of times I, I, I tend to be very direct and I like to just, you know, I, I get excited and I'm like, let's get at the answer, you know? Um, but oftentimes I find the approach of slowing down and almost like spiraling in towards what I think the need is, right? Talking them around it to some sort of tangential things where ask them a question that where the answer would point me towards or away what I think their need is, right? And and get them. And, and a lot of times, I have to make it so they think they've come up. They came up with a solution themselves because there's sometimes there's some egotistical people involved. Um, and and it requires a delicate touch and going in with the things I mentioned and, and kind of talking them slowly around in circles, but spiraling inwards towards what I think the need is. And then once I get enough answers that are pointing at that need and, and clearly not something else then I say I'm done, right? Um, and then depending on the person, like I'll try to state it out loud and be like, did I get that right? It sounds like you're, like, and it always come up with like, you know, it, it sounds like this is what you're trying to get at. Like, do I have that right? And actually mean it, right? Do I have that right? And if they say no, then you, you got to try again. And it might be frustrating. Um, 
but you know, it's a, it's a good time to exercise your patience and, and your compassion for the other person because generally they all have really good intent, especially my coworkers, like they all do. It just, you know, there's varying levels of, of stress, of abilities to articulate energy levels for the day, right? There's so many confounding factors, um, but the best bet always seems to be to give them the benefit of the doubt and, you know, do your best to swallow your pride and, and go again. Um, you also mentioned uh, needing to interface with the teams to actually build it. Um, my, uh, 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 sorry, not estimate, uh, my inclination is to believe that they're probably on the more engineering side of things, which if you're in Silicon Valley means they're probably somewhere on the spectrum. Um, hmm. That's my particular challenge is being autistic and trying to communicate. Uh, can you relate any of this to how you directly interface with the engineering teams? Because I'm, I'm on the other side of this. I want to be able to communicate to people who are in leadership and help them understand me. And it's kind of this mutual gameplay thing that has to happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, communication is definitely a two-way street. Um, and, and by the way, you're articulating things very well to me. Um, I, I never would have guessed that you have issues with that. Um, and, and, and yeah, I, I do. And my obsession for the fast last five years, which is why I'm asking these questions. Oh, well, good. I mean, it, it, it shows that, you know, you're like, I couldn't tell. So if, if you, if this is an improvement over where you were, man, it, it shows. Um, and, and yeah, there's definitely people who are at varying degrees of being able to express themselves. Um, and my, my job is to be kind of that bridge. I'm on the business end, but I work really closely with product and engineering teams. Um, and it, it, it involves the, so the same principles as before, right? It involves um, using your intuition. It involves being very compassionate. It involves making sure that they're aware of your intent going in. Like all, I, I always like to exhibit that, you know, however I can. Usually it's through just, you know, raw enthusiasm and, you know, giving them the space to get out what they need to get out, even if I might already know what they're going to say. Um, you know, making sure not to cut people off. Uh, you know, I, I've got some coworkers who have, you know, like stutters and just giving them the space to get it out. And like, and we get along great. Um, but, you know, there's just need, there's just need a little more space. And so you give it to them, you know. Um, and when it comes the other way around, right, if I'm trying to take something technical, and translate that to someone who is far less technical, like most leadership tends to be, um, then you, you need to adjust, right? Like like we were saying in the beginning of the podcast and, and meet someone where they're at, right? And understand like, okay, um, you know, this person in management or leadership typically will have a billion different things flying at them at once. And they, like, like us, are constantly going through that energy and resource allocation question in their head. And the really smart ones are doing it consciously, right? and they're doing prioritization exercises all the time. I'm like, okay, what is the most important thing for me to deal with right now and tomorrow and the day after and the next month, right? Um, so, so trying to work on taking something technical, bringing the terms or the language they might not understand into language they will understand and keeping the ones that will be new to them to a minimum, right? And so that would mean making like... Um, if, if you need to like a metaphor out of something, right? Like relating something complex to like a common practice, you know, a day-to-day -day thing. Um, it means if you're gonna use a technical term, you know, don't use the acronym of it the first time around, spell it out and then put in parentheses the acronym version. And that way you can shorten it later. 
right? It means making sure you, you don't have any excess verbiage. You want to cut everything to be as lightweight as possible while still getting your point across. And it's a really tricky balance that'll take a lot of practice to get. But once you do, you become like dangerous in the best of ways because now you're technical and you can communicate and you can influence people, right? The be that communication to get, you know, what you need to get done. And that's, it's a really powerful spot to be in. Thank you. That was excellent. Um, I also really uh, wanted to uh, appreciate or emphasize the uh, the thing you mentioned where you're trying to guide them to the questions, but you're actually trying to be honestly trying to find what they need. Um, that I see that happening a lot with uh, uh, people like me is the other people assume what we need and don't take that extra effort to actually really dig in and, and confirm it. And I appreciate that. And I think a lot of, I can't say for certain, but I imagine the people you interface with are very thankful about that as well. Thanks. Yeah. I, I just got some nice reviews back that, that confirmed that. Um, and, and yeah, it is just like, if you're, it, it's just practical at the bottom of it too. You know, like if what you're really trying to do is solve the problem, you need to do that in order to mitigate against getting it wrong. Right. And, and the question is like, okay, well, how many problems am I trying to solve? And maybe the people who don't do that are trying to move too fast in order to go solve the next four things. Right. Um, but getting the first one wrong will, you know, could result in those four things also being wrong. So it, it's just, uh, it's just a level of diligence that's necessary to do things right. Um, and again, it's, it's about long-term thinking, not short-term thinking. Right. And, and you having to go back to fix the mistake and maybe rebuild the thing later will cost way more than the extra hour of conversations you might do up front. Um, so, so yeah, it's just a matter of taking it really uh, seriously. I feel like uh, what you said about um, kind of uh, like the, the idea of not using too much technical language that is a kind of interesting thing even though this is perhaps a totally different uh niche or something uh the way like in my path of like doing this blog it's basically it's kind of tricky because or i guess it's like science communication i'm talking about here is um it's really tricky because you're talking, you're like basically trying to uh, give people a lot of technical stuff, but you have to do it in a way that doesn't, um, like as you said in the very beginning, like it doesn't sound like a foreign language, right? <laughs> um, and uh, so like in my own journey, like the first path that I took it was basically that I was writing really bad scientific-ish stuff, except it was so informal that it was being rejected a lot. And people are like, oh my gosh, this guy is very, very sketchy or whatever it was. And then, uh, so the first stage, I guess, that I've experienced is that I was kind of forced to become very technical for certain audiences and then once i've kind of gained their acceptance 
um, now it's like it's going backwards in a weird way, like trying to find a way. Because mm. I know that the general audience will not want to read a lot of the overly technical stuff. Like it is basically painful for me to read even, but it worked in a specific audience, which is basically people who study pharmacology is the audience that I was targeting. And yeah. I've slowly kind of unwound that and tried to retain the attention of that same audience, but also expand it to like more, uh, like the, I've on Reddit, it's like the Psychonaut subreddit, which is like, mm-hmm. they're not really into the whole like biological element so much, but more of a general just ideas, right? Kind of thing or consciousness or yeah. whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. That's a tricky balance to strike. And it's it's really cool that you were able to nail it down for the pharmacological side of it. Um, I I think that's that's really necessary because that way you can be sure to get the technical bits correct, which are, I think, the hardest bits to to grasp. And then from there, you can refine and simplify. And 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 the the multiple audience thing is is really interesting, too, because it's like, you know, that's what it means to, to meet people where they're at is like understand first, who am I talking to? And in order to do that, you have to, you know, it, it's actually a great exercise in empathy, right? Because you got to put yourself in their shoes as best you can first and try to tailor things in a way that it'll land with them. And so now you've understood like, okay, there's the pharmacological audience and they have an entirely different set of communication preferences than, you know, the more general folks on the Psychonaut subreddit. Um, and it's the same thing with, with management and engineers, right? Like you got to understand their their positions and, and where they're at in order to meet them there. Yeah, I feel like in some way my, uh, my what is the word, I guess, um, the reason I went, well, no, I wouldn't say that even actually. The One of the things that I think kind of kept me dwelling into the kind of world of and I don't mean the subreddit in this case, but just the world of being a psychonaut, I think, is because of, I don't know, I think kind of tasting every different state kind of allows you to just think that, uh, like, there's going to be people out there who are in these states for various reasons, like genes or circumstances or whatever it might be. And um, it's kind of like, I want to know what it's like to be an infant. I want to know what it's like to be schizophrenic, to be depressed, to be manic, to be anxious, to have PTSD, to like whatever it is. I feel like that's almost the goal of being a psychonaut, except maybe it's not. It doesn't seem like it at first. It might be to also push the limits and experience things that no one has potentially no one has ever experienced that's debatable right or maybe maybe everybody's experience is not comparable or something actually like maybe you're not even Mm. reaching any of the same states at all but Mm. but i don't know it's kind of interesting yeah there's a lot of interesting things that you touched on there right and it's like well one thing is like i don't know if you know, anyone can easily define the goal of being an explorer because that's essentially what a psychonaut is. Yeah. Right. Maybe it's just to venture in the unknown and see what's there. Um, maybe some of the specific goals like reach this state of consciousness or this other one. And, you know, can you guarantee that 
the one you reached is the same as the other person's? And the answer is probably not. Yeah. Um, the but then are there indications that there are certain shared states that are or, you know mental places you might call them um, that many people have have hit? Um, and I think there is. Um, I had an experience like that once, where I had an experience and. Later on, I saw a piece of art, and I saw the art was exactly that experience. And I was like, huh. Ooh, interesting. Okay, that means someone else had that, you know? And um, and, it, and the, it, that experience is actually listed in the Tibetan Book of the Dead as well. Um, I was going to mention the, the book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, 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 it was the, I don't know if you're familiar with Bardo, uh, Bardo beings, but... And that was the name of the piece of art I saw. And I looked into that and they're apparently like the, the beings which act as like gatekeepers from one world to the next. And they prevent you from going from here to there. Um, and, and yeah, I had this very vivid experience that I'll probably remember forever. And, you know, the fact that someone made art about it proves that someone else had it or at least saw something very darn close. Um, the colors were different, but the, the face shape was the same. And I, and I can actually send that piece Do it. Um, into the chat. I see uh, Lovetron has already got... It, Alex Gray made the art, actually. Um, and Lovetron's got an Alex yeah. Gray avatar. <laughs> I love this stuff. This is So this is actually very similar to a, a THC trip I once had. Well, there we go. I think it was a very so, large, large dose of THC. <laughs> I could imagine. Yeah. Um, so uh, I was researching that, uh, apparently that only happens if you don't eat and you go on a bender for like a week long and then the large dose of THC does that. I think there's a very particular, uh, state where that happens. I'm um, skeptical of that. Uh, I, I've used it and experienced This is, this like is, uh, I don't know if it's the complete picture, but, um, I've been finding cases where people are seeing these psychedelic experiences entirely off of THC, and the more I dig in, it's always this... Uh, it's very similar to the going in the middle of the, the woods in the dark in a cave and not eating for three yeah. days and that <laughs> kind of experience. And I just... I think the, the THC is boosting the serotonin receptors enough that it tips them into that state, and it's not necessarily the THC. It's just a contributing factor. I don't know um, if I was fasting. I might have. I might have not been eating a lot at the time. I'm not sure. It, it, it's it's fascinating to me. I I, I want to see if I can see these experiences at some point um, without anything and just doing it through my gut bacteria, which is why I'm ex exploring it. Um, mm. uh, I I bring this up because I'm excited because uh, uh, what I what I see happening as a larger conversation between Quirky's experience and. I don't know how to pronounce your name, the other presenter. Um, uh, I see it. There's like a language translation problem, but there's also this underlying culture. And you also mentioned the word spiral, and that always makes me think of fractals. So it's like this, this fractal exploration of layers of culture and language to be able to kind of go up and down the, the layers in the fractal, the, the different zoom levels. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. I don't know. And you got to you got to bridge. Yet. Yeah, yeah. And and in order to communicate well, you got to find, like, look when there's a gap in communication. Like, what do we mean? It's you know two different sets of language, and the language you could say is all like one continuum, you know, fractal, right? And 
in order to bridge the gap, you have to do literally that within the fractal of language. You need to find the words that can go from one layer to another. It makes sense. The ones that the ones that actually do connect in the in the mosaic, you might call it. Um. So yeah, yeah. It's. I don't. I don't know what else to say about that. I think that that kind of sums it up. I <laughs> uh, will add. So I think the things, the factors that you listed, like um, fasting and all that, and darkness. I do think those facilitate it, but I don't necessarily think. Well, maybe the darkness might be necessary or closed eyes or something, but I just wanted to know, I don't disagree that those could induce that kind of thing, but I also have had like really crazy experiences myself, even outside and um, not fasted because I don't generally do that. But, um, but I do think that those things can enhance it, but I think you could also like do things like like, I think if you took a crazy amount, you would be, like, shaking and panicking and on the floor, like, dying. <laughs> but um, well, that's kind of what I did in the first time I've ever taken it, is I basically took, like, three dabs, and it was horrifying, and things were <laughs> fractaling and repeating, and... Oh, man. You animal. <laughs> it was, I thought I was never going to consume any again. I was, like, thinking, well... My girlfriend doesn't like this THC stuff, right? So she's letting me try it, and I'll just, I'll just do it all and like see <laughs> what happens. I want to know what it's like. And it was that horrible. Was later. <laughs> that was uh, my my first experience with THC. Was that kind of like I was going paranoid, like I, I was having panic attacks and that kind of thing. Uh, it wasn't until a couple of years ago that I started exploring my own biology. I realized that uh, what ends up happening is if my serotonin system gets overstimulated, my body just starts dumping it out. You know, it's like a fast removal process. It's some kind of fail safe. I don't know the genetics off the top tip of my tongue, but that's where I explored it. And like the liver kicks in and enzymes start getting rid of it. And then I feel awful. Hmm. Um, and it wasn't until I found that, it's like I took another look at THC and uh, there's actually a, a medication over in the UK called Stativex, yeah. which is a, a microdose of it. And it's been uh, uh, formulated and approved for multiple sclerosis muscle spasticity. Hmm. But it, it's a microdose version. It's a little spray bottle. So I, I knowing that I have a really... Uh, weird relationship with serotonin in my biology. It's like I took another look. So okay, let's try a small dose, and it was like it unlocked my memory. It was weird, and like I've been digging out like what the heck's going on here. Uh, how come this is reducing my brain fog, but when too much, it ends up driving me into uh, a psychosis state. So I, mm. uh, trying to explore that in a more controlled manner versus just yeah i just got some cannabis and smoke it because it's fun kind of situation yeah. which just didn't agree with me mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that's how i used to be too man yeah me too actually. um then I, then I lived with three stoners in college <laughs> and they made it their mission to get me high <laughs> and oh, i got my lungs throat everything got wrecked but you, you're reminding me of um God, we have what are they called like a like a, a goodie bar something like that i don't know it was like some some edible that's a chocolate bar and it's broken up into six chunks and you know they're like hey do you want to try this and i was like oh you know whatever sure and 
I'm like, how much do I eat? They're like the whole thing. I'm like, okay. So I eat the whole thing. They're all laughing because you're only supposed to eat one chunk. (laughs) Fucking six times the dose in me. And I am an inexperienced smoker. And I I hit a point where I'm like, I, I, I didn't know what panic attacks were at the time. I was 21. And I had one. And I was like telling them like, guys, I'm feeling really like I can't move. I'm feeling really cold. Can you carry me to my bed? And they bust out laughing because it's like 12 feet away. But I... (laughs) but I can't move. Right. So, so they carry me to the bed and I remember just being in there in the dark for like two days straight. Whoa. It was was horrendous. Absolutely horrendous. Do you know how many milligrams it was? Um, it had to have been. Was it a Kiva bar? Yes. That was it. Oh, it's probably a hundred milligrams. Oh shit. What makes it worse is if it's a a chocolate that's loaded with lipids and that makes it more able to, through the intestinal barrier um that's actually, <laughs> my uh tincture is a uh, thc emulsified with like a lethicin and it, it soaks through all of the mucous membranes way faster which means i don't have to have as much thc in it so it's cheaper it's kind of if you're doing it in a medical capacity you don't you're not doing it recreationally then uh cost benefit analysis ends up coming in because yeah. The, the Stativex thing is like $40,000 a year over in the wow. UK, like through pharmacology stuff. So I'm like, I, I, yeah, like that's like literally six years of my income. So it's like, well, how, <laughs> oh my I don't want to break the bank on the cannabis stuff. So it's trying to optimize dosing and the bioavailability and that kind of thing. And then you're talking to me mm. about uh, eating a chocolate bar or something like that. It's like, oh God, that must have been. Like, I can't even imagine that's like way more than I ever did that messed me up. And that sucks. I used to love those, like the Kiva that was, oh man. And it gave me such the craziest experiences that I still can't even describe. They were just so bizarre. Someone in Psychonet does that like it's cool. Was it Riley? He's like, yeah, 100 milligrams, no big deal. I don't remember. I just did 500 milligrams last week. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I know people that did that. I know people that took the whole Kiva bar and didn't get much of anything. It's like crazy, and he dabs like like twenty times a day or something. Oof. Well, that that became me, by the way. Oh man, I bet. Yeah, we we would um, you know two years later, <laughs> my friends and I all had dab rigs, and I I had a friend who was uh, he was making uh, wax back then in like 2012, 2013. Um, and and yeah we'd like i had two classes tuesdays and thursdays that was it so i had three day weekends every week and i never had class two days in a row i ended up on a very strict three to three schedule bed at 3 a.m wake up at 3 p.m take a dab (laughs) (laughs) eat some breakfast go to the gym take another dab and just repeat and you're still a member of society imagine that (laughs) yeah somehow somehow (laughs) There is this this unfortunate thing you mentioned to your uh, uh, friend group there in college doing that to you and laughing at you. You could imagine what happens if that situation occurs in like every college, you know, like maybe like once a week or once a month or just the, the net effect of that on people's experience with cannabis. Like they'd walk away from that thinking yeah. it's evil and demonic mm-hmm. and that yeah. might be driving a lot of the larger laws and regulations and this kind of thing. Um, so it, I hear those stories and then I extrapolate that out and doesn't 
damn it, you know, I'm like frustrated with it. Because yeah. finding out that this is actually like the perfect medication and I've needed to take it my entire life and I just didn't know because of the muscle spasticity stuff. Mm, yeah. Double edged sword there. Oh, yeah. you college kids. You have this issue? Uh, yeah. Um, cannabis at low doses seems to prevent my legs from not working. And then also I have a Crohn's disease symptoms. So like, have you tried ends up reducing the inflammation? High CBD strain. Um, that, does weird, that does weird things to my liver function and makes oh, yeah. me more insane. So I've been specifically okay. focusing on the THC aspect of the the Stativex formula. Okay. Mm. Well, I, I'm so glad you found something that works for you. Mm. That's that's incredible and, and yeah you know leave it to fucking college kids to overdo something <laughs> look we we tried to legalize cannabis and like look what's happening right now now there's a pandemic and now society is collapsing and <laughs> you see where this takes us no i'm just kidding yeah it's all weed's fault <laughs> yeah exactly uh yeah, so I, I actually, uh, I'm not going to talk about that, but let's just say uh, there's a reason why I'm looking into the effects of the liver and bile and uh, microbiome CBD. It might actually be the, the rise in CBD and all the alcoholic drinks could be destabilizing the microbes that produce hydrogen peroxide and could actually be contributing in maybe like 5 to 10% of the infectious rate in America when you combine Ooh. it with everybody with diabetes. Well. Um, but that's a crack idea, and I don't want to stop people from taking this as a medication. It's the overuse of it. Again, it's the same problem as the the, the college campus situation. You know, it, mm -hmm. this is a really powerful stuff we're playing with here, and we got to treat it with respect. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. Preach, man. Have all of you felt that, well, I've, I honestly feel that I've had weirder experiences with THC than with psychedelics. Do any of you guys, what do you guys think about that? I can't really comment. You, My psychedelic experience is pretty limited so far. Are we still recording? Um, I can turn it <laughs> off. Let's, how about let's turn it off? Oh, um, so, thank you all for listening, and... Um, we're going to talk behind your back now, so I <laughs> hope you enjoyed this, and um, I guess that's it. Goodbye. And thank you Bye. for coming on. Thank you for that. I forgot to be formal. Yeah. All good. It's my pleasure. It's a lot of fun. And thank you for everyone that's been talking in, the, in this discussion, and I'm shutting off the recording now.